You can be seated. Turn with me to Acts chapter 13. We will pick up this morning where we left off in verse 13 to the end of the chapter. So, I want to mention just a few things before we get started here. The the front uh, parking spots here, which has the handicap sign, and then immediately to the right, those uh, spots are, uh, we kind of want to reserve those folks for our elderly and for those who are late arrivers who may be visiting our church. so the ones that are coming in, you know, with uh, either wheelchair or um, um, what do they call it? Walker. Walker. Good grief. Walker and um, whatever that might be. Just, it just will help those folks. I want to mention that. Um, now we have some really good news to share. Um, Tiffany Terenzi is with child. Yes. Tiffany and Aaron, we're pumped for them. Excited for them. Excited for our church. Um, We are, uh, my grandmother used to call it, in the family way. We We have at least four that I know of. So we're thankful that God is blessing our church that way and blessing all of their homes uh, individually. And another exciting good news before we dive into chapter 13 here of the book of Acts, Pastor Alex, Lord willing, will be preaching next Sunday. So happy for our brother and... Um, It's been a road. He's had an experience here in 24, and so we're we're happy that uh, all things being equal, he'll he'll be in this pulpit next week, and so we're we're looking forward to that. He will be preaching Acts chapter 14. All right, so let's let's uh, let's dive in here, Acts 13. We're preaching through the book of Acts in a expositional narrative way, moving from event to event. Uh, Particularly, we're, for the most part, going through a chapter at a time. And so we pick up here in verse 13. The church is now expanding its way to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, and then when he ascended, they would do. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But when they went up from Perga and came to Antioch, Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went to the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, If you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about 40 years he put with them in the wilderness, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. And after, 
that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. And of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming in whose sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those who fear God, and for us who has been sent this message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, who are read and every Sabbath fulfilled condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses." Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews devout... Converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly, saying, It is necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. 
For as the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But when they shook off the dust from their feet, their feet against them, and they went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let us, let's bow together and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the Lord's day, and we here on your world, are worshiping your son Jesus, as is all your churches that are across the globe. We would ask that as you bless them, Lord Jesus, you would bless us. And so that we would see um, the beauty of who Jesus is. And in your mercy, dear God, Jesus died and rose from the dead, just as from the words we just read from. And so, with hearts of gratitude, then, as we hear from your word, your truth, the only truth in the, in the world that ever has been that pertain to the words of life, as they instruct us, may we leave here today rejoicing, filled with joy, who belong to you and uh, live for your honor and glory alone. We pray for that in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Central in Israel's life was the synagogue at the early New Testament period and doing life really flowed out of the synagogue. This was not only true for worship, but it also created uh, connections for, you know, for business and living and all of these things. Literally, synagogues um, were built in the central of towns because it was the hub of how uh, God's people, the nation Israel, did life. And it really kind of is true for us, right? The church for God's people is the center piece of of their living and how they do life. Well, of course, worship was held in the synagogue, and this is where we find ourselves in this text today. Uh, Paul and Barnabas have gone there, and, and they, of course, know this, and they are eager and anxious as they have set forth on these the first missionary journey. They're going to go all the way into Asia Minor and to the church at Galatia that will culminate this first missionary journey. And so these guys don't mess around. They go straight where they know the people are. And as we read through the book of Acts, as I mentioned last week, there are ten times that these guys, it's like wash, rinse, repeat. They do the same thing over and over again. And we'll see this again next week. In Pastor Alex's text, and they head right there because uh, they know the gospel is fertile there. It's fertile ground for reception because they're going to take the words of God given under the old covenant and point them to the promise that has always been since Adam and Eve fell. And you know, today, um, you hear a lot of words about gospel, and I, I would say most of those are, are, are good and they're true, you know, in simplicity I would say, you know, the gospel is the good news of, of Jesus, um, 
And, 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 and we, we don't run away from right the good words of the Bible. I mean, we, we love the good words of the Bible. But I, I believe that this text um, takes that simple definition and gives us a lot through the Apostle Paul's uh, preaching of a biblical theology there for 30 verses in, in chapter 13. And so when we look at the gospel itself today and the good news, I want to give you five things that we're going to cover here that I think the apostle gives us. And the first one is that the gospel is robust. Secondly, the gospel centers in its beginning on a promise. Thirdly, that the gospel is covenantal. Fourthly, that the gospel is theological. And then the number five, the gospel brings a warning. Okay? And again, we're not trying to say, um, because the gospel is a simple definition, the good news about Jesus. And if you were to Google it, it'll give you any kind of short definitions. But I would tell you, as we move through this, and we'll see as we move through this text today, the gospel gives us all of that, every last bit of it. And it is important, as we look at the first one, that the Bible's gospel is robust. The, guy, the Bible, the gospel itself is robust. It is strong. It is sturdy. The gospel is healthy and it's vigorous. It builds endurance and overcomes the gospel is uncompromising and forceful. The gospel is rich and full. And all of those couplets make up for us the word robust. And I think that's the Bible's word for, for the gospel. I really believe it's robust. And I know you, you believe that too because the gospel is never neutral. Never is it neutral. We see even here in our text today, the very people that are filled with joy and love because they have believed the gospel promise that they found in Jesus is then taken by the kingdom of the world and they're going to be persecuted and hated and their very lives are going to be sought to be killed. The gospel is never, ever neutral and that's true now for all of us sitting in here. For whatever you may understand or not understand about the gospel, you are not setting there neutral to it. And, and my grandparents, my dad's dad and my mom's mom, um, were the only two grandparents that I had in my life. Both lived in the South. Um, and uh, neither one, one had as high as a third grade education. The other one had a first grade education. But man, they believed in a robust gospel. So awesome. What a life they lived. And man, they endured a lot of hardship. I never knew it as a kid because they were just filled with joy. Logic dictates to us that the gospel is robust. I mean, if we're, if we're going to take the Bible just at face value, right, it's talking about the words that gonna, are going to bear out eternity. Right? So simple human logic tells us that the gospel is robust. It's never passive. I would encourage you parents to not be passive with your children pertaining to the gospel. Never. Don't you not try to influence them. Yes, you let it be a work of the Holy Spirit, 
Call it what you want. You give them the words of the gospel. Do not be passive. There's no room for being passive in Christianity. I mean, you know, week to week, I mean, nearly every chapter, their lives are being sought. Heavenly wisdom dictates to us that the gospel is robust. It's all of those things that we mentioned it. And, and I really feel there's a fear too much on, on, on you know, just general Christianity and, and how it tries to approach the world. We do it passively. You know, we don't want to make anybody feel bad. And, you know, we're struggling. It's not that we're not personally trying to do that to someone else. I'm just saying if this stuff is true, and of course it is, the gospel is robust. And Paul uses here a biblical theology from verses 16 through 47. And man, is it rich. What a sermon this is. In our biblical theology class that Pastor Zach um, has taught, this is his def definition that he gives every week. We'll do well to hear this, and those of you that have been a part of the class, you, you've heard this. Biblical theology is reading the Bible as one redemptive historical story by a divine author, so that each portion of Scripture is understood in relationship to Christ and is accomplished in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Man, I love that. So good. We're on a reading program. Um, and, um, you know, one of, our, one of our hearts as an elder board for our congregation to get enriched, because I really believe it will bring you a, a joy. If you, you really begin to read through the Bible and see the Christ-centered nature of it, it will lift you up you'll sense the richness of a robust gospel. Secondly, the gospel, in it in simplicity, is a promise. And, and for this audience, the nation Israel, their ears would have perked up when they heard the apostle preach this text, this biblical theology of te uh, text that's given here. Look with me at verse 22. And when he had removed him, again, this is the apostle preaching, he's speaking about David. He raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, to, who will do all my will. Verse 23, of this man's offspring, not David himself, of this man's offspring has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. And that promise goes back to the fall in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That's where it goes. It's been coined today, the Proto-Evangelium, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. 15, proto or protos, however you want to say that in the, uh, it, it means first. It means first. And evangelium has to mean the good news. It's the first good news. Immediately when man fell in his sin and brought uh, the detriment, uh, you know, the detriment of the fall of the sin, which he would be condemned to eternal death, God rushes and comes to give us the proto-evangelium, the first good news. Christ Jesus has brought us his reign in that. And that's why we don't want to live in fear, because we are all under the reign of Christ, who rules from heaven with the church triumphant, who is with us now in the church 
militant while we're on the earth. Why? Because we rejoice every time when we see that word promise. Because from Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, God promised a Messiah who's going to right the wrong. That's not a weak gospel. That's not Christianity light. Christianity light and a weak gospel does not save. It doesn't. And so if you're feeling things tightening up, I would suggest that you have, are not on the right side of the gospel right now. And take Jesus by faith, even as we speak. Each covenant that unfolds following Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, bring us the promise of the good news. Again, I call your attention to chapter 13. Look with me at verse 32, because Paul's going to do it again, so, so their ears will perk up. Because he's pointing them to Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of the Old Testament truth. And when these individuals, the Israelites, heard of the promise, they know that God had divinely promised them a Messiah who would conquer the serpent. That's what they're hearing, and that's what we should hear, because that's the truth of the Word of God. Look at verse 32. And we bring to you the good news that what God promised to the fathers. So he doesn't just do it once. He does it twice to take them back. I'm going to talk to you about the one who's going to rectify sin. That's the Messiah. That, of course, is Jesus of Nazareth. And that, dear friends, is good news. Man, that's good news. Each covenant builds on the promise of the good news. Covenant theology is not replacement theology. The church does not replace Israel. The church is Israel. He's literally calls, the apostle does, when he writes in another epistle, he calls the church the Israel of God. God has only had one eternal plan. That eternal plan has centered on the sending of the Messiah. And it's the Messiah, it's the Christ. It's Jesus of Nazareth that is the only one that can save these people, and it's the only one that can save us. We've got nothing past Jesus. So covenant theology is not replacement theology. Rather, it is a building upon the promise that was made. And that promise was for a Messiah. Each covenant gives us more and more detail about the Messiah and about redemption. Thirdly, the gospel is covenantal. It's covenantal. It's covenantal in the sense that it builds upon the covenants. The only way someone can really understand the Bible appropriately is to understand the covenants. God's relationship to his people only comes through the covenant. The creation covenant begins with Genesis 3.15 and the covenant, some call it creation and covenant, call it what you want, the Adamic meaning Adam, the covenant that God made with Adam. The Bible, the gospel, is covenantal. And that's what Paul knows. That's what Paul is preaching. He begins in verse 16. You look at verse 16 in, in chapter 13, and he says, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Because he knows he has an audience that understands the Old Testament. He knows he has an audience that understands the proto-evangelium, 
the first gospel. He knows he has an audience that knows all that the covenants that God made with his people. And so he has them on the edge of their theater seats. But he calls them to himself. And then here's what he does. Man, is this so powerful. He preaches from Acts 13, verse 16. He goes back to Moses delivering God's people out of Egypt in bondage and slavery. And he takes them through to verse 24, all the way to John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. This gospel of ours, the biblical gospel, is a covenantal gospel. Paul here will preach and he'll, he'll mention the three heroes of the faith to the nation Israel in Abraham and in Moses and in David. And no, he doesn't use Moses' name per se, but rather Moses' writings. They know who wrote the law. And so once again, they're drawn in to the great heroes of the faith and the three greatest heroes of Israel's history, Abraham, Moses, and David. And Paul begins to point them more and more in the development of this promise through the covenants. So much so, when he gets down, he wants to make it clear to them. Look at verse 26. He lets them know in that last phrase, this is the message of this salvation that they are proclaiming in the gospel. The gospel is the message of salvation. And dear friends, what's at stake is eternity. It's either eternal condemnation and eternal punishment. In a place called hell, not that God's presence is not there. God is omnipresent. It's that his presence is there and one is under their, his wrath apart from the grace of God. Are you resting on the other side of that in the peace and the calm that has come to your soul because by faith you've taken Jesus, man. And this whole thing rests on the promise. I love, I love that because that's where I feel my assurance. I feel my assurance that it rests on who God is and what God has done. So when he mentions Abraham to them, they know a part of the covenantal promise that was made to Abraham that all the families of the earth will be blessed. When they mention the law and some of the writings in Deuteronomy that are coming out of this, they know from Moses that Moses says a deliverer will come who will save his people. When he mentions that the people really want Saul, and he allows that, but he replaces him with David, and yet he points to them, though he's very heroic to them, David died. Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive. So when he... <laughs> Preach it. I can't wait to... I can't wait till Theo's in here and he's barking that. They know from David's writing that a king will come whose kingdom will reign not for a thousand years, but forever. Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenants. The gospel is covenantal. Jesus died and rose from the dead. Jesus is the final covenant. There's no more covenant coming. Because Christ has fulfilled all the things that were required of God and his holiness and his justice. And thank God we only have the new covenant because all of the covenants rest in the person of Jesus who is the fulfillment of the new covenant, the New Testament, the final covenant, a covenant that is eternal. Next, the covenant is theological. 
the covenant, I'm sorry, the gospel is theological. Covenant's theological too, but, but the gospel is, is theological. Look with me at verse 48. Chapter 13, verse 48. So he gets to the end of this, right? This preaching of this biblical theological message, right? He's tracing through how God has delivered his people. He's moved through Samuel and the prophets. He's moved through the kings. He's named all the heavyweights in Israel's history. And then he says this, and when the Gentiles heard this, the scripture says it to us, they began to rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord because they, you know, they had believed on that. Watch this. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The gospel is theological. We only think of the gospel on our part as it pertains to us according to to the good news of the gospel, and yes, it is good news, but the gospel has a God side. And that God side is often uh, neglected because people get uncomfortable with words like election and choosing and predestination. I always thought this is a little bit ironic. People who believe the Bible is the inspired word of God and they won't deal with the words of God. And that's where inspiration goes to. The very words. The gospel is theological. And that theology is unconditional election. That's what's being stated there in, in Acts chapter 13 verse 48. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It's sovereign grace. It's the gospel revealed from the side of the Trinity. Why? Because the gospel, in all of those things that we've just described, is God's message. It's God's message. He's the one that created it. He's the one that defines it. He is the one alone in the triune Godhead is involved every last one of them. And so, when you're reading the Bible... The Bible describes to us about the Trinity in relationship to creation itself that he will redeem on the day of Jesus' return. But it also deals with how the Trinity not just did it here, but how he's saving across the globe even now in the Father electing, the Son redeeming, and the Spirit regenerating. That's their involvement in the message of salvation in the gospel. Unconditional election is not a crystal ball where, where God weakly setting back and just kind of hoping, man, I just hope they believe in me. And he looks through the crystal ball and says, sees in the corridor dime who will choose him. No, that is not election. Unconditional election is there is no foreseen action or condition that we meet that induces God to want to save me. Not my bloodline. God knows not my intellect, not my gifts, not my power, and anything else that you can think of. No, rather God's election is unconditional based upon his love. Ephesians chapter 1. God saves whom he wills. He does it unconditionally. The appointment that is stated here, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, took place on God's end in eternity past and in the process of time, just as it came to you, the appointment came to you that you were going to believe. And the evidence of the fruit of that belief is that you repented of your sin in the acknowledgement that God is holy and you trusted in Jesus as your Savior. And I didn't understand that when I got saved. Man, I just knew the night I got saved 
I was dying in my sin and going to hell. Part of the great rejoicing here of this appointment to believe is just as Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, he follows it up in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, the gospel is going to go to the end of the earth and now it is evident to all these people, God's saving Gentiles. And aren't you thankful that God is saving Gentiles? That's why we're sitting here. <laughs> And as a result of all this gospel being theological and this God joining people to his family through the person and work of Jesus Christ, people are praising and they're worshiping God, they're glorifying God and they're rejoicing. God has given them joy and peace. And oh, by the way, they get scared because they're going to get killed. No. It says though they're going to get killed, the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. Wow. Better believe it's robust. Better believe it's powerful. Don't think you can take the gospel lightly and become a Christian. You cannot. And you can't say it because I'm up here with every form of my being trying to describe that. Jesus is not an addendum. Jesus is a dominator. Jesus is the king. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is master. Jesus is a lion. Don't deceive yourself. It's strong. That's why it saves. A God that doesn't ask for anything is not worth anything but a God that asks for everything is worth everything and the church is the people of God and the family of God and in local communities the center of your very life should be lived out and how you live is out of this place thank you Betty and CH learned that far before I went to Bible college Please, parents, don't be passive with your children. Love them fiercely. Jesus draws near to those who are weary and restless. He redeems and saves those whose hearts are broken. So bring your sin to him. Bring your pain. Bring your sorrow. Confess it to him. And Jesus will heal your soul. He'll heal your soul, man. Jesus will give you peace. Jesus will give you rest. Don't think about lunch or this week. Think about Jesus. And what you're doing with him. Because the gospel has a warning as we close. R.C. Sproul said this, There are only two ways to die. We can die in our sin or we can die in faith. That's it. There's no third way. You'll either die trusting in Jesus or you're going to die in the fear of death. Verse 41, Paul's kind of wrapping this thing up, and that's what he's doing. He's bringing a warning, and because, because the gospel has a warning, folks. It's part of the balance of the gospel to pull out sin, to pull out judgment, and to pull out hell is no gospel. It's not a gospel. He says, look, you scoffers, and be astounded and perish. Paul's identifying, I believe this is Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5, the rejectors that were the rejectors of the nation back then. He's saying, look, you can't scoff at this. 
If you scoff at this and you stay in this position, you're going to perish. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish. The gospel is a warning. Scoffers will perish. The scoffers here are the people in the world that say, this is stupid. Those stupid people need Christianity as a crutch. They're silly people. They're stupid people. They're people who are weaker than us. And so we laugh at them because they believe in such foolishness. That's what a scoffer is. Now don't kid yourself. You're scoffing if you're rejecting. You may not think it's silly. You may not think it's stupid. But you're in that vein of scoffing if you don't take Jesus. The word perish there has the concept of, please get this, to avert the judgment of the final day. Right? My wife has worked for a dentist for 40 years. People cancel their appointments all the time, right? So nobody likes to go to a dentist. Who wants to go to a dentist? Who wants to go to a doctor? So you can avoid it. You can avoid the appointment. The day of the judgment is an appointment we will all keep. The very day you will die, God is already ordained. You will not live one more second. You will not live one less second. We'll all die. Those in Christ will live, though. And that's the response that we want. The response, the only response to the gospel is to believe. It's to believe that the Bible, which declares to us the gospel, is true about everything it says about who God is and what God is and who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And it's true about everything that it reveals about my life, that I am a sinner in word, thought, and deed, and I do not deserve life with God. But thank God. Because he gave me the gift of faith, I'm going to die in faith. And it's not because I come from a right bloodline. And it's not because I come from a right and have certain gifts or powers or intellect. No, it's just the sheer mercy and grace of God that I belong to him. And don't you see, that's what we're doing together. I love what Spurgeon said. We're just people who have found the life of the bread, who are eating from that bread, and we're pointing anyone who will hear us. Belief results in joy and rejoicing and glorifying God. Not hiding things about Jesus. Jesus is the best thing that's part of my life. Unbelief in this case is led to hardened rejectors. And these hardened rejectors in verse 50 tell us that they persecute the church. Now, the longer you refuse the gospel, your heart will become more hardened in it. So don't think you can even casually take any message or if somebody's sharing Jesus with you. The longer you refuse Jesus, the longer you say no to Jesus, your heart will get hardened. Take Jesus by faith. Know the forgiveness of your sin. Church this morning, come to the table. Eat the bread. Drink the wine, because we're never going to be hungry or thirsty again. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the gospel. We know it is simple in the sense that one can get saved 
by it in its simplicity and understanding that you, God, are holy, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and that Jesus alone saves by his life, death, and resurrection. We ask this morning that you'll save some if there's some here that don't know you. Lord, as your Spirit is dealing with people, we pray that that they would not harden their hearts. But with a broken heart and a contrite spirit and a humility, would they confess their sin and trust and faith alone in Christ for you, Lord, are the promise, Lord Jesus. You are the only hope for any of us. We're thankful that that's true because we do find our rest and peace, our stability in this world that's in derision against you. That's where we find our hope, our rest, our comfort. So we ask this morning, Lord Jesus, for the hearts that have come here wearied, that you would refresh them. That they would enjoy as your people the confidence that the table brings in the bread and in the wine. Because we're going to never be hungry or thirsty ever again. Our soul is quenched. Thank you, Lord. We love you, Lord. We only love you because you first loved us. In Christ's name we pray these things. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.